Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Electronic Sound podcast. And uh, this is a podcast for issue 43, which is uh, the Radiophonic Workshop. My name is Push, and I'm the editor of Electronic Sound, and I have with me Mark Rowland. Hello. Who, who is the uh, deputy editor, and Neil Mason. Hello. Who is commissioning editor. And we have a very lovely um, sort of, uh, well, it's a, a test card on the cover, effectively. Yeah. Our very own test card that we made. Mark Hall, our, our editor, made one. Um, and uh, Radiophonic Workshop um, on the cover, lots of stuff inside about the, uh, the workshop. And also we have a fabulous 7-inch with this issue of two, um, two new Radiophonic Workshop tracks, uh, one of which includes uh, material from the Delia Derbyshire archives. And they're both, uh, they're both fantastic. So um, if you haven't got it already www.electronicsound.co.uk that's where you need to go and um, Mark you were um, you're responsible for the cover feature this month aren't well, you? Well kind of, I mean we all went didn't we? Well you and me and Finn went yeah. down to the Royal Albert Hall for what was a small performance in a room called the Elgar Room just off the big room sort of a it was sort of. It wasn't a private do, but it, it it was quite a discreet little celebration in a way of the 60th anniversary of the Radiophonic Workshop opening in 1958 in Maida Vale, and they managed to gather together. Obviously, there was the, the touring band. Yeah. There, um, and but also um, they had a message from David Kane, who couldn't turn up but uh, sent a, a message and also there was Eunice Jones who was there in the 1970s uh, and Brian Hodgson who was responsible for making the sound of the TARDIS with his key along a, a piano wire in the 60s and um, became the, the leader manager yeah, he was the second kind of. There were two. Yeah, he he replaced um, Briscoe. Desmond Briscoe. Desmond Briscoe. Yes, was the first boss. Dick Mills, who was there almost from the beginning, uh, almost until the end, in fact. Yeah. He says that when uh, Desmond Briscoe retired, all of the composers at the workshop all felt that they ought to apply for his job, but. None of them actually wanted it. So some of them went on holiday and hoped it had all gone away by the time they came back. And some of them just sort of hoped it would just, you know, blow over. Um, um, uh, did, did Brian not want to do it himself? I don't, did the, well, I, I think he sort of reluctantly threw his hat in the ring yeah. because somebody had to. Yeah. And I think he, you know, because he, he was a composer as well, and I, I, I don't quite know, but I think he felt that uh, you know if, if one of those didn't get it, then they'd give it to somebody from outside, and then anything could happen. Probably a sense of duty yeah. uh, took over. He's There's a great picture of him in the mag wearing a... Um, don't know when that was taken. He, he looks a uh, fairly young man there. He's got a great Christmas jumper on. Um, uh, yeah, so it was. Uh, so you talked to. I mean, we the th three of us went down there for it, and uh, the idea was we were going to talk to a couple of members each, and you ended up talking to everybody, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, all went a bit sort of. While, um, while, while Finn and I went and got pizza. That's pretty much what happened. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up interviewing about a million people. I mean, it was, it was great, but it was um, a bit 
frantic. And I interviewed Elizabeth Parker a few days later, who, who didn't mm. go, um, which is great to talk to her, especially since she actually went to university here in Norwich, where we're based. Ah. Um, very interestingly, she told me things I didn't know, which she studied um, an, a new MA course that was set up by the UEA when they still had a music department electroacoustic music which was being run by Tristram Carey ah. and uh, she said her and Tristram didn't get on very well ah. because um, he wanted to make music with the EMS Synthy 100 the huge EMS synth uh, which was like uh, half a dozen of the VCS3s all put together in this massive cabinet thing lots of um, pinpoints to put in your little connecting points and she couldn't stand that it was just too long-winded so I don't think they really saw eye to eye but that very synth of course is now owned by Daniel Miller oh okay yeah right so which I that's found that's the one he's got right that's, okay. that's that his synthy 100 right. yeah he heard that uh, when I think actually they got oh, rid of it long before they closed yeah. the department down and he yeah. heard about it and um, yeah, sort of rushed up and bought it, and they couldn't fit it in his studio, and had to take a wall down, I think, to get it in. That's the one that he, he bought for pretty much nothing, isn't he? Yeah, they like... actually gave it to him. Well, because I think the thing was that because it was owned by um, the university, they couldn't um, they couldn't just chuck it away. They had to uh, as, a, as a sort of a public. Um, they had to account for yeah, it. Yeah, they had so to account had to for it. So in a ledger. That's right. Account so they had to, they had to get, and I yeah. forget what, because he did tell me what much he paid for it. I can't remember what he said now. It wasn't much. 50 quid or something. Um, I mean, you know, they made, I think there's about, around about 20. Right. In existence. Right. It might even be fewer than that. Wow. It might be sort of 14 or something. I mean, they didn't make many more than that. Um, I, th I think there was, you know, probably 30 or so made, and they were incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. And they went to radio stations that, and, and yeah. universities, so there was one in Australia. That's the one that Jack Dangers has got. Right. So Tristram Carey had one down there, and that's Jack's one. There was one at the Prague radio station, there was one in um, the former Yugoslavia, there was, there was one there, Paul Pignon was uh, sort of in charge of that one. And mo mostly at institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were sort of academic music-making machines, mm. really. And, um, yeah, and now, you know, they're, they're virtually priceless. The tens and tens of thousands. I was just going to suggest maybe we should do a, uh, a feature on all of them, where they all are. <laughs> Neil's, cool, we haven't thought of that. Neil's looking in, in <laughs> horror at the idea. Oh, have you thought of that? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Neil's wanted to do that for ages. That'd be great, yeah. So if um, you're out there, I mean, we know where, we know where three are. And we know more than that, do we? Yeah, I think so. Because so there's one, there's Jack's one, there's Daniel Miller's one, and there's um, the chap who runs Analog Solutions, synthesizer company, he's got one. After that, I'm stumped. I don't know where the others are. That leaves 27. Well, you trace a few, don't you, through, <laughs> through sales from... You know, I know we've looked at this. We will revisit it, Bush, just for you. Yeah, excellent. But it was a great... Um, it was a great event to go to. Uh, there was a huge thunderstorm afterwards, which felt somehow meaningful. 
Um, there's also, as part of this radiophonic workshop piece, a um, very interesting essay by Dr. David Butler. He looks after the Delia Derbyshire archive at the uh, University of Manchester. And he lets us see some very interesting things. So there's some beautiful images from Delia's school days where she was doing drawings and there's some sort of rep repetitive, repetitive patterns, which uh, I think is quite interesting, showing her interest quite early on in the idea of repetition and shifting bit by bit. We've got one of them in the mag, haven't we? Yeah. Um, when she was in the lower third. Yeah. Which wasn't a band. No. It was a level of school. Davy Jones. But uh, <laughs> David Butler's assertion uh, is, of course, th this idea that, that Delia Derbyshire left the workshop in the 70s and pretty much became a, a, a recluse and abandoned music altogether and didn't go anywhere near any music until uh, shortly before her death when Sonic Boom got in touch with her, Pete Kemba from Spaceman 3 and started doing bits and bobs with her, but then she passed away. Um, he sort of blows that out of the water because in her archives there's quite a lot of music that she made in those uh, in that period. That's very interesting. As is the single. Yeah, single's great. Strange Beacons is the track with the Delia Derbyshire material used on it. Um, it's got sort of drone sequences that she'd recorded in um, the Kaleidophon studio on Camden High Street, um, which was David Vorhouse's studio, um, and where she worked with Brian Hodgson as well, and they recorded some of the White Noise album there. And um, they've also got um, voices from those peculiar number stations, you know, that, that broadcast oh, yeah. spy. Yeah, yeah. So just kind of number stations. repeating yeah. words and words over and over again. Really eerie. Um, and while we're on the subject of the seven inch, the other side is a uh, great, really fun, but also quite sinister. They're both quite sinister tracks. Um, created by Dick Mills and um, Kieran Pepper and Bobby Irland, which is they've taken recordings of uh, the Mind the Gap um, recordings at the tube stations and then sort of spliced this with all kinds of strange sound effects and it, it gradually gets more and more disturbing as it goes along. It's sort of funny but it sort of isn't at the same <laughs> time. Uh, it's a great record, it's, it's such a pleasure to have um, had a hand in making that happen. Yeah, very good. It's excellent. And um, what else is in the mag? Neil? Well, you know. I don't, you know. Yeah, but there's some really interesting features this month. We've got, I was just thinking, just flicking through it, there's, we've got from, you know, not from the sublime to the ridiculous, but from Let's Eat Grandma, two 19-year-old teenagers from Norwich, to John Hassel, who's uh, mm. 81, he's still cutting it, and that just seems to, I don't know, somehow seems to sum us up, really, <laughs> I think, from those two extremes, really. Um, but there's there's a, we've got an extract from the... Um, the we do, yeah, the, Matt the Johnson's book, biography. Which is, that, that's something else, that is. That's, uh, well, we don't get to write kind of, um, you know, rock and roll tales. Yeah, that is... You know, electronic rock, music yeah. isn't kind of a wash with the kind of the debauchery and the drink and the drugs and the... Well, I don't know. Depends. The shenanigans. 
Well, no, but it's, it's, you know, that's kind of clubbing excess, isn't it? Really? We yeah. don't really, we don't really touch I on that suppose. side of yeah. things. But yeah, but it's a great excuse to tell a proper, a proper tale. It's from around the making of the, the video that went with Infected, the Infected album. Because he was so spent after the after the soul mining album, he said he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna be touring. The record label went mad, and he said, "I'll tell you what, I'll make you a I'll make a video for every track on the album, and I'll do a world promotional tour." And they kind of agreed. <laughs> so he didn't tour. He didn't tour. Infected. In no. Really, no. I didn't know that. He did. He went on a promotional tour. So pr- which he almost went out almost with, finished him as well with the film sort of thing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so he went. Yeah. But he didn't, yeah, there was no live dates. Wow. And infected. But he just made this video where he, you know, almost died several times. Well, it's, um, the extract we've got is about when they were in South America, isn't it, in the jungle. It's like Apocalypse Now. It really almost. is Apocalypse Now. You know, yeah. and he's good with um, Peter Christopherson. Yeah, um, Sleazy. Sleazy, who was, um, um, obviously, we know him, we know and love him from um, Throbbing Gristle. Um, but um, he was uh, he worked for hypnosis, didn't he? The the sort of graphic art. Um, yeah, I mean he company. was coming he was coming into his own as a you know as a filmmaker graphic yeah. artist around that time and hooked up with he knew Steve-O through the some bizarre some bizarre connection the tangled webs right. that these people weave. Um, yeah, the story's just, I mean, it's just... It's, it's, pr- it's pretty intense, isn't it? I think it's a sign of the times as well, when you read that um, to make they, they to make the video, they got a budget of 350,000 quid <laughs> in 1987, or whatever it was, 88. <laughs> 350,000 quid <laughs> in those days. Well, I mean, yeah, when record labels had money to throw away. Yeah. yeah, times change. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's a great read. The whole book's really good. It's a very, really enjoyable. It's by a guy called Neil Fraser, who's a who's a historian, I think. Right. Um, Matt Johnson's very interested in the history of East End London, and Neil wrote a book about uh. the East End because Matt's parents ran a pub called the Two Puddings. Yes. In Stratford, it was music venue, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, they yeah. had a lot of yeah, they had a lot of bands play there, which is how. Which is how Matt kind of got into it. Mm. They would, you know, they would hear these bands coming up through the floor from the pub down below, and they would sneak in when the instruments were set up, and they were off having whatever you know, fish and chip suppers and buck around. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. We've got a we've got a piece about Larange as well, hip hop guy from who lives in Seattle. Who's a uh, he's changing the face of hip-hop. Really great piece by, by the renowned hip-hop writer Angus Baton. Angus, who used to work at NME. Um, yeah. Great to have him in the mag. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's, um, it's very different, isn't it? That, um, I, when I was reading that before, uh, before it went into print, when we were subbing the pages, I sort of was reading it. And it, uh, it sent me scuttling to Spotify and YouTube to listen. Uh, and it was really impressive stuff, actually. It's that kind of sort of shadow level, kind yeah. of intelligence yeah. Yeah. to it. Yeah, it's definitely. Real, he's a storyteller. He tells stories yeah. through 
you know, he uses old kind of jazz recordings and old radio plays and things, and he tries to correct, and he uses MCs as well yeah. to build these these narratives. So his albums all have linear narratives yeah. to them, created from. Oh, he doesn't talk about what they are. They're one of these things that you, you know, you sit and listen to quite carefully, mm. and you sort of build this thing, build these stories in your own mind while listening to his, while listening to his work. It's quite. As we say, he's an extraordinary man. Yeah, yeah. He sent us some uh, two or three uh, really nice um, private messages on Twitter as well, thanking us for putting him in the magazine and, and stuff. Um, very polite man. Uh, Doris Norton as well, and uh, Johnny Jewell. Um, so plenty of stuff. Um, Tom Bailey as well, Thompson Twins. Yes. Um, talking about his... Um, his influences, and Jeff Lynne. Jeff Wayne. Jeff Wayne. <laughs> Jeff Wayne. <laughs> Jeff Lynne. Similar. It's Jeff. It is. No, but I see, you know, it's, yeah. Jazzy Jeff as well in the magazine. Jazzy Jeff, yeah, he's not in the magazine. Who's Jeff Wayne? Push. <laughs> he's the bloke that did War of the Worlds, I believe. That's your man. That's <laughs> a really interesting story as well, talking about budgets. Um, you can read how the budget for making that album increased from 3p to 700 billion by the end of it, which is another sign of the times. Yeah, money well spent there, but it celebrates its 40th anniversary this year, War of the Worlds. He's going out on a he's going out on a tour, which uh, I, for one, would quite like to go and see. Yeah, would be. Uh, Richard Burton did the voiceover, didn't he? He did. I liked his stuff in ELO, though, better, to be honest with you. Who, Richard Burton? <laughs> yeah, when Richard Burton was in ELO. <laughs> was Richard Burton in ELO? No. Yeah. He was in, he? No, yeah. he was in Wizard. <laughs> um, that was Roy Kinnear. <laughs> What's the album of the month? Album of the month is Reed and Caroline Hello Science. Yeah, which is a very fine record on Vince Clark's very records in print. Yeah, this is their second album. Quite quick. Has it been quick? It's, it's quite head. quick. People, yeah, second one. People do tend to make albums quite quickly these days. I suppose. Yeah, that's great. They should. They should do. It must have been last year that we did a feature on them, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Must have been last year. Yeah, I think getting albums out quickly is a good thing. You should do that. Uh, but that's a, that's a really great record, really full of, chock full of tunage and, the, oh the Bukla and Singing, that's right, that was that was the first album. They're currently it? supporting Erasure on their US tour. That's right. Don't know how they got that gig. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about Ferry, I really like, I like the, the, the idea of Ferry, it's you know, Vince Clark's label, but you would imagine, you know, a man of his standing, it would be kind of a vanity thing, but not at all, he runs it. You know, he's insisted that he, you know this is his project. He's interested. He's watched this. You know, all through his his musical career, he's watched. Well, Daniel Miller basically <laughs> run a record label, and yeah. and I think he's always thought I can't fancy doing that. Yeah. And he runs this thing himself. He sends out the, you know, you get the press releases from him. And, you know, he does. He takes care of all of it himself, which um, I think is to be commended. I've noticed that on the on his stuff that he sends. Um, he always 
calls himself Vincent. Vincent, yeah, rather yeah. than Vince. Yeah. Yeah, I'm never sure when I email him whether it's, it's cool to say hi Vince or hello Vincent. If it's business, it's Vincent clearly. Right. And if it's music, you know, his yeah. own work, then you can call him Vince. It took a while for the penny to drop with me when the label first started. I knew it was, you know, you had something to do with it. And I was getting these emails from Vincent and thinking, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. And, it took, <laughs> and then the penny dropped that it was actually Vince Clark. He was a, yeah, I felt like an idiot. <laughs> There's some um, fine albums, actually. I, I was just flicking through the albums section and um, working from the back. The Misread album, KO, that's that's a great record. I reviewed that one. But, something that, but again, that you know, that's something really different for us. Isn't it, it really it's is. It's a dancehall record, but kind absolutely of. blew us away, didn't it? It really did, yeah. Just as soon as we put it on, it, it sort of... You could hear that... that there was something going on there that was really unusual that attracted us. That's a great record. Uh, the Sink Your Teeth debut is also really good. They're really um, gathering momentum at the moment, getting lots of great gigs, lots of coverage. They were album of the day on Six Music the other day, I noticed. And it's John O'Podmore's Kumo side project. Oh, I love that, is, yeah. That's quite a mad record. Is that the um, the, the field sound, recording? soundscapes, yeah, yeah day yeah. and night, recorded yeah. in the same place. Brilliant. It's mm. great that people are making records like that. Concretism on the excellent Castles in Space label, that is a brilliant record. Very kind of, um, you know, it's um, synthwave stuff, but really warm. You know, it's, there's a real warmth to, to that record. Abel Mogard, mm. album from him, which is beautiful, minimal. Chatwin, who's a young guy based up in Scotland, making these huge sounding, soundscape albums. I mean, it's funny that it just doesn't stop, you know, the album releases. In the olden days, they, they used to come in waves. Yeah. Mm. So you'd get the, you know, you'd get the kind of the Christmassy releases would come, you know, after the festivals, September, October, it would really pick up, you'd yeah. get, you know, Around there'll be nothing early in the year at all. Nothing in January. Yeah, no, it would be, be sort of March, April. Yeah. March, April, May were heavy months, and the autumn were heavy months. But summer and winter. Summer would be dead quiet because of yeah. the festivals. Yeah. No one would release. These days, it just doesn't seem to matter. People just. People just you know we can't. We haven't got enough pages mm. to cover the albums that are out every month. That Soulwax uh, Essential record is a cracker as well really like that one we should um, talk about um, our own album that we are just about to release that's very exciting yes that's um, Me Be Manifesto it's a, how to describe it Me Be Manifesto versus Terry Riley in C is what it is available now for pre-order it'll be shipping late August we thought it was going to be late July but um, pressing plants seem to like changing that information so it's August now um, on semi-transparent neon yellow vinyl um, and what it is is a, a performance of Terry Riley's In C done by uh, an American orchestra and 
they gave the recordings to various remixers some years ago and, and released a CD of loads of little remixes of it. And one of the remixes was Jack Danger's. And typically what Jack did, uh, rather than just produce one mix, he actually produced five mixes, one of which went on the CD, and the other four he's just been sitting on all this time, and uh, one of them is 20 minutes long. We were just chatting on the phone a few months back, and he mentioned this, and uh, I said, well, has that been released? And he said, no. I said, well, we could release it. He said, well, that'd be brilliant. So here we are. We're releasing it. In is incredible, isn't it? It's kind of, it's the, almost the, the purest idea. It's so simple. It's a and series yeah, of parts. Twelve, isn't it? Uh, I can't remember the, the, the numbers. Um, which each player chooses a part, plays it for a certain amount of times, and then moves on to another one. But there are rules, though, aren't there? There's rule, you can't be more than so many bars ahead That's or behind right. of... Yeah. So someone starts with one, and they're all in C, obviously. Yeah, they're all C major. Um, Jack has kind of messed with it. Yeah, there's drums on it. He's put drums and beats on it, he's shoved <laughs> it through filters, he's put it into a sort of 6-4 or something time signature, one of them, because it's all in 4-4, four, four, the original. So he's kind of messed with the time signature on it as well. So he's done all kinds of twisty, strange Meat Beat Manifesto tricks on it. But every time you hear it, every time it's played, it's different. Yeah, yeah. And you never know how long it's going to last yeah. either. Yeah. Um, Jack played, uh, Terry Riley did a performance of it in San Francisco. This was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and the audience were invited <coughs> to bring um, their own instruments. So Jack took his uh, clarinet, I think. And I can't imagine that. Yeah. Right. And, and a speak and spell machine. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine that. Sat in the audience playing it, so there's all people playing different different instruments. It's like one of those kind of like ukulele concerts where they they all the was it ukulele orchestra of Great Britain where everyone takes their ukulele. Oh, they take their own, right? Yeah, yeah. They all jam along at the audience end. participation because yeah, yeah. that was there's lots of interesting things about that era of music and what Terry Riley and others were doing, particularly in the '60s and. Lamont Young as well with his those dream house, excuse me, performances. And this idea of um, immersion and involvement, audience participation. And um, I think those ideas of, of blurring the line between performer and audience, encouraging people to get involved was really ahead of its time and sort of set off a, a chain of events which has perhaps helped inform how people make music now and how much more democratic the music making process has become. And I think that's part of what Terry Riley was really interested in and Lamont Young, of um, unlocking music for, for everybody. But it's a great record. Um, we're very excited about it. Can't wait for it to uh, yep. start landing. Where can people get it from? So uh, if they go to uh, Electronic Sound, .co.uk, um, they will find it immediately. I think it's uh, on the second row. Yes, there it's right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's actually, we've, we've had it out on pre-order for a little, well, four or five weeks now. 
Yeah. And there are 500 copies, and we've sold more than half of them. Yeah. So, um... Don't hang about. Don't hang about if you <laughs> uh, want to get your hands on one of those. Um, so, I think that'll, um, that'll do us for this time. I think so. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Nice chatting to you. And, uh... It was it was really great to get Jeff Beck in the magazine. That was yeah. the best. That was the best thing about this issue, I think. He's the next one. I thought it was Jeff Bridges next time. Uh, thanks for listening. Did he do that album Odalay? Possibly. Moving on. See you later. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>